This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Karen O'Hanlon-Court, welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Zeiss. Since 1846, it has been the mission of Zeiss to constantly improve microscopy through innovation. With their unique portfolio of light, electron, ion, and X-ray microscopes, they enable research and industry for the challenges of tomorrow. Highly skilled application scientists support your work and make sure you get the most out of your investment. Today's presentation is titled Biological Applications of X-ray Microscopy and Correlative XRM FIB SEM Imaging and is being presented by Dr. James Fitzpatrick, Scientific Director of the Washington University Center for Cellular Imaging and Associate Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology and Cell Biology and Physiology. James Fitzpatrick, PhD, joined the School of Medicine on June 1st, 2015 as the inaugural scientific director of the Washington University Center for Cellular Imaging and as an associate professor of anatomy and neurobiology and cell biology and physiology. Prior to his appointment, he was senior director of biophotonics and strategic technology initiatives at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla, California. Dr. Fitzpatrick completed his undergraduate studies in chemistry at King's College London and undertook graduate training in optical physics at the University of Bristol, also in the United Kingdom. During his PhD, he designed and developed a novel injection seeded optical parametric oscillator laser system for the study of nuclear hyperfine structure in the excited electronic states of gas phase free radical species. After completing his doctorate at the University of Bristol, he moved to, to the United States as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. There he shifted his focus to study biological molecules such as peptide mimics and their microsolvated clusters in the gas phase using high resolution fluorescence spectroscopy. In his second postdoc at Carnegie Mellon University, also in Pittsburgh, he spent his time studying protein-protein interactions using tools such as fluorescence microscopy and fluorescence correlation spectroscopy. After completing his postdoctoral training, he joined the Carnegie Mellon National Technology Center for Networks and Pathways, an NIH-funded roadmap initiative whose mandate was to develop fluorescent probe and imaging informatics technologies to study networks and pathways in living cells. Dr. Fitzpatrick's primary research interests lie in the integration and application of multi-scale optical and charged particle imaging technologies, specifically biological applications of ion microscopy, development of correlative 3D light and electron microscopy approaches and new computational tools to visualize and manipulate large-scale multi-dimensional datasets. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to James at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly forward slash XRM webinar. So now over to you, James, for the presentation. Great. Well, thank you very much uh, for the kind introduction. Um, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm James Fitzpatrick. Uh, I direct the Center for Cellular Imaging at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. Um, and I'm going to talk to you today about the biological applications of X-ray microscopy and also some of our, our, our very recent work in uh, correlative uh, X-ray microscopy and focused ion beam SEM imaging.
So just to give you a little outline, um, what I want to cover today uh, is to give you an introduction to, to imaging with x-rays, um, to talk a little bit about sample preparation, both both labeling and, and, and mounting um, approaches uh, uh, for, for, for putting your biological samples in uh, the x-ray microscope. Um, I'm going to go through some of uh, examples uh, from my group uh, that where we've used um, uh, x-ray microscopy to image um, uh, biological structures uh, in different uh, cells and tissues. Um, and then finally, I'm going to give you a sneak peek into some very recent work in our lab, which is developing uh, targeted correlative uh, XRM FibSim uh, imaging. So to start off, uh, let's talk a little bit about x-rays. Um, x-rays are actually uh, very common uh, for imaging in medicine. Um, I'm sure we've all had uh, an x-ray done at some point in our lives, um, but it's really useful um, in terms of being a sort of two-dimensional imaging technique. Uh, it's non-destructive and very useful for examining uh, calcified tissues uh, like bones, for example. And you can see uh, an example of just two uh, uh, x-rays here, one of, uh, one of a hand um, and one of the, the ankle joint. But one of the more uh, recent um, innovations um, over the last, I would say, uh, you know, a couple of decades um, has been uh, sort of the evolution of computed tomography or CT or CAT scans. And this is where we actually use x-rays to generate a three-dimensional um, image. Um, it's actually, again, non-destructive, but it is also useful for examining t uh, soft tissues. So patient goes into a CT scanner, um, multiple images, 2D images are taken, and then they're computationally reconstructed um, back into a 3D volume that you can then um, digitally slice through. And this enables uh, physicians to make more accurate um, diagnoses. Um, an important point, though, is that um, just because you're uh, uh, recording multiple 2D images and, and, and com computationally re reconstructing a 3D volume, um, it doesn't guarantee soft tissue contrast. The real key uh, point um, in generating uh, the ability to, to, to visualize soft tissues as opposed to calcified tissues like bone um, is actually having a sensitive detector. Um, so medical scanners use very sensitive um, detection of x-rays, um, and this is something that the Zeiss Versa uh, has in common. It uses a very sensitive um, detector, which gives it the ability to visualize um, and see structures that you can't see in, in regular computed tomography um, scanners. So CT imaging uh, or micro-CT is actually very standard in the life sciences. Um, there are uses of it in developmental biology, uh, imaging soft tissues, um, or imaging hard mineralized tissues like bone, um, uh, natural history, imaging fossils, for example, in environmental studies, um, in tissue engineering, looking at, at engineered scaffolds and biomaterials um, uh, for imaging in, in vivo, for example, and then also in, uh, in the plant sciences. So really, CT scanning has become uh, sort of ubiquitous uh, in, 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 in life sciences research. And so really, the, the evolution of micro-CT um, actually has offered improved resolution. Um, so you can see here a, a mouse embryo, um, you can see the surface rendered 3D reconstruction, um, and then you can also see a, a, a slice uh, through that uh, 3D volume. And you can see you actually have really uh, impressive uh, resolution. So how does a CT scanner work? 
basically um, you acquire uh, 2D images over uh, rotation of the sample through 360 degrees. So we have our x-ray source, we have a little mouse for example, um, and you can see I've put two images there of different uh, orientations uh, as we go through a 360 degree rotation. Um, we can back project those 2D images into a uh, calculated 3D volume and then what that allows you to do is you can digitally slice without having to do, say, staining and histology um, to visualize uh, internal structures uh, within that particular sample or that organism. So in conventional uh, laboratory micro CT, uh, the magnification depends on what we call uh, the geometric factor. And basically, uh, this means that a small spot size determines your resolution. The key point is that your sample actually needs to be close to the detector, uh, sorry, close to the source uh, for high resolution. The challenge that you have is that as your sample gets bigger, by necessity it's going to move away from the source and thus your resolution is going to decrease. In contrast, if you were to go to the synchrotron, um, you actually have a collimated beam. So now the magnification depends on the optical magnification of the, your detector. So you have a scintillator, the x-rays pass through your sample, they hit the scintillator, they generate photons of light, they're uh, detected optically and then are passed to a detector. This has a much larger spot size, uh, so it's independent of resolution, but because you can use multiple different objective lenses, um, of different optical magnifications, the sample does not need to be close to the source uh, for high resolution. And what Zeiss has done with the Versa is they've basically combined the best of both worlds. They've combined um, X-ray micro-CT imaging with um, essentially uh, the synchrotron beamline. So you have your source and we have our sample and then we have a scintillator like the, uh, like the beamline. Um, the x-rays pass through your sample at a given rotation. They hit the scintillator. They produce, uh, the scintillator converts that uh, into uh, photons of light, which are detected by the optical uh, objective, and are then passed through to a detector, which is in this case a very, very sensitive electron multiplied CCD camera. So this doesn't require a small spot size. You don't have to have your sample close to the detector, um, and you have multiple detectors, multiple uh, objective magnifications that you can use. Um, and so you have this combination of geometric, like micro CT, and optical uh, magnification. So what you end up with is what we call resolution at a distance, or RAD uh, imaging. And the really nice thing about these scintillated objectives uh, is that they are optimized uh, for contrast. So you can see here, um, this is just some uh, 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 tissue from a mouse knee joint. Uh, on the left, you can see uh, the micro CT flat panel detector. And then you can actually see um, the same uh, sample imaged on a Versa XRM, scintillated objective. And what's really, really uh, neat about this image is you can actually see um, that the cartilage uh, in the micro CT image is just really this amorphous 
um, signal. There's really no fine structure to it. But yet in the Versa image on the right-hand side, um, you can actually see all of this microstructure in the cartilage uh, that you weren't able to visualize um, uh, just using a, a traditional uh, flat panel micro-CT system. So now what I'd like to do uh, is, is talk a little bit about sample preparation approaches for XRM. And there are a variety of different um, stains, small molecule stains, that provide what I like to call systemic contrast uh, for imaging biological samples. So here are a few, uh, few examples. Um, one of our go-to favorites in the lab is Lugol's iodine, or I2KI. Um, we also sometimes use elemental iodine um, dissolved in ethanol, so this is an ethano ethanolic solution. Um, we also use, for some of our uh, musculoskeletal work, um, either phosphotungstic acid, PTA, or phosphomolybdic acid, PMA. Both are ethanolic, uh, ethanol, ethanolic solutions. Um, we also use osmium tetroxide, particularly when we're doing lipid imaging. Um, because osmium binds to, uh, to, to lipids. And then we also use um, some assorted iodine, iodine and gadolinium-based agents, um, which are typical uh, for medical imaging, like iohexol, um, isopramide, isoxalate, um, gadoterate, uh, gadoexorate, etc. Um, these are all FDA-approved um, uh, contrast agents uh, for uh, human uh, imaging, for example. Um, we also do some work um, tracing vascular, uh, vasculature and lymphatics. So there are uh, some particular tracing agents that I wanted to make you aware of. Uh, one is called Microfill from a company called Flowtech. And this is a lead-based uh, radio-opaque tracing agent. Um, it's a very viscous um, solution, so it's great for large vessels, but it does fail to fill smaller capillaries. Um, but the benefit of this viscosity is it does prevent um, leakage uh, once you, say, excise an, excise an organ and you want to do uh, some uh, imaging of it. Um, in contrast, um, Nanoprobes uh, makes um, this uh, polyethylene glycol functionalized nanogold solution. Um, it's called Auravist. Um, and there are two forms that we have used in the lab. One is the 15 nanometer form. And we typically use that for blood uh, pool and cardiovascular uh, imaging. And they also have a 1.9 nanometer form, which we've actually used for imaging the kidney because it can pass through the slit diaphragms. Um, and then there's another company uh, called Med, uh, Medlumin. Um, and they have two in vivo reagents. One is a colloidal nanogold solution, um, which is very similar to the 15 nanometer form of Orovist. Um, and again, we use that for blood pool and cardiovascular imaging. Um, they also have a bismuth oxide nanoparticle that's coated with starch. Um, this is a much, much bigger nanoparticle. It's around 250 nanometers. Um, but we've had some success with this uh, in imaging uh, the liver uh, and the spleen, uh, for example. So we've talked about systemic contrast, um, and we've talked about um, different tracing agents. But what if you want to image a uh, uh, label, sorry, in a targeted way? And one way that we've actually done this in the lab is using the ENZMET uh, approach, or enzyme-catalyzed metallography. So uh, you can see a schematic of this process on the left. Um, and I'm going to take, take you stepwise uh, through 
the labeling process. But basically, we have silver ions present in solution, and we have our, our cell or our tissue, um, and we've used um, a primary antibody to uh, uh, label uh, one target with high specificity. We then have um, a secondary antibody that's labeled with a peroxidase. In this case, it's the HRP, so horseradish peroxidase. Um, and this secondary antibody binds to the primary antibody. Then uh, we have um, the peroxidase uh, catalyzes, um, uh, basically it's a peroxidase catalyzed uh, hydrogen peroxide, which produces singlet oxygen. Um, and that singlet oxygen reduces the silver one ions in solution to silver zero. And because singlet oxygen really doesn't diffuse very far, probably about one to three nanometers in solution, um, the reduced silver is actually deposited in very close proximity to the original target. So now we actually have a metallic um, deposit that, that is high Z, high atomic number, um, that's going to allow us um, to visualize that targeted structure in the X-ray microscope. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So just a few concerns about um, sample prep that are really uh, important if you want to get into this sort of imaging. So there are two major issues to take into consideration when you select your contrast agent. Um, one is the rate of diffusion of the agent uh, through your specimen. Um, as we mentioned earlier, um, one of the benefits of the X-ray microscope is that you aren't limited by sample size. So in micro CT, the bigger your sample, the, the lower your resolution. Um, but in the XRM, uh, because we have resolution at a distance, we can use large samples and still get sub-micron level resolution. But of course, the larger sample you have, um, it may take much longer for the contrast agent to diffuse through the specimen. Um, so that's an important consideration. Uh, secondarily, um, the ability of your contrast agent to attenuate x-rays is important. More attenuation, more contrast. So really you want to be working with higher Z uh, materials, so higher atomic number uh, materials. So some examples. Um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Lugol's iodine is our kind of go-to uh, starting point for most of our XRM projects. It has super fast penetration because this is a very small molecule. Um, but one thing to bear in mind, which is, which is both um, a pro and a con, is the staining is reversible. So if you stain a sample and then you take it out and you put it into just say phosphate buffered saline, the Lugol's iodine will just diffuse back out. Um, so one thing we have realized in the lab is that we need to, even when we finish the staining, we need to uh, keep it in, in Lugol's iodine, just a diluted form, to just keep that equilibrium uh, pushed uh, so that the, the stain does not diffuse out. Um, but the pro of having a reversible staining process is that, say you have a, a fossil that you want to uh, visualize and you want to add some contrast, you can stain that, image it, and then put it back into you know some buffer or just water or something like that, um, and you can leach the stain back out so you're not damaging, uh, say, an irreplaceable um, object. Uh, in contrast, say PMA, for example, which we use for a lot of our musculoskeletal imaging, uh, has much slower penetration, but it does provide excellent contrast. Um, and osmium tetroxide, uh, we found, has the slowest penetration, 
Um, and as some people in the lab like to remind me, it is toxic. Um, it's also photosensitive, so you have to do your staining in the dark. Um, but it does really give you uh, incredible contrast. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we use this for some of our lipid imaging and lipid droplet quant uh, quantification. Um, a couple of important points I want uh, people to understand. Uh, when you mount your sample in the XRM, it is imperative that it's immobilized. If you just have something that's floating in solution, um, any motion is going to really um, uh, trash your ability to reconstruct a high-resolution tomogram. So it's important that you immobilize the sample. Um, we typically do this in agarose or in plastic resin, uh, much like you would for electron microscopy, um, just to embed the sample um, to provide that, that high degree of immobilization. So now what I'd like to um, move on to um, is uh, some of the different biological structures and systems that we've imaged uh, in, in the lab here at WashU um, uh, by using uh, our Versa uh, 520XRM system from Zeiss. So the first example I want to show you is actually a mouse embryo. So this was stained in Lugol's iodine for three days. We mounted it in agarose. So this was taken on the 0.4x flat panel detector. Uh, we did 3,201 slices. Exposure time was two seconds per slice. The voxel size is a little under eight microns. And this is a 3D rendering um, of, of the mouse embryo. Um, I can take that same data set and do a maximum intensity projection. And now you get a really clear view um, of all the different structures that you can uh, stain and image just using uh, Lugol's iodine. Um, you can see uh, the back fat, for example, the brown fat is labeled. You can see where there's blood still in vessels. It appears as these bright white lines. Um, you can see the lungs, the heart. You can see a lot of the, the, uh, the, the, the vasculature, the musculature. You can see the brain. You can see the eyeballs, the optic nerve. Um, if I go down, for example, to um, or I transition to a 2D slice view in X and Y of the same data set, again, we're going from the top. You can see the brain. You can see the optic nerves there. You can see all of the musculature. We can see the brown fat. You can see the heart muscle there and uh, the lungs um, as we go down through uh, the embryo. And uh, one of the reasons uh, that we were interested in, in, in doing this was actually visualizing the heart muscle. Uh, so we actually then transitioned to same sample, um, but using the scout and scan approach, we can actually transition to the 4x objective. Uh, this was a six second scan now um, per slice, 1601 slices. Our voxel size is a shade under two microns. Um, and this is actually uh, just scrolling through in the XY plane um, the, the heart muscle, and you can see um, the aorta, you can see the valves, you can see the ventricles there, and all of the, the microstructure um, of the heart. Uh, some other imaging that we do uh, on, the, uh, on the system is actually, uh, as a part of correlative research studies, um, some of our uh, colleagues get uh, biopsies, um, uh, from, from humans um, as a part of research studies. So what you're looking at here is, a, is part of a human stomach. Uh, this is the anthrum. Um, this was actually stained in Lugol's for five days. 
and mounted in Agaros. And this is imaged on the 4X scintillated objective. Um, we didn't really get very good contrast with Lugols in this. So this was a 33 second exposure time per slice, 1600 slices. And this is a sub-micron level voxel. So this is about an 840 nanometer uh, voxel size. Um, what we did uh, as a follow-up to this um, with, a, with a separate sample, so this is actually the corpus, um, is we did um, a, a prep that, that some of the people do, who do serial block face imaging are, are going to be familiar with, um, but this is an OTO um, prep. Um, takes about five days, and this is because, as I mentioned, Lugos did not give us um, really uh, sufficient um, contrast. Uh, mounted this in Agaros, and now uh, with the 4x objective, we can do a 1.5 second exposure time, uh, do a much higher resolution scan um, with uh, 3,000 uh, slices, um, and this is a 2 micron uh, voxel. And you can actually see uh, all of the lipid there that's in the uh, in the stomach, and we can actually quantify that very easily. Uh, speaking of lipids, um, we have another project uh, with one of our colleagues in bone and mineral diseases here at the medical school who's very interested in nerves and fat in bone. Um, and she wanted a way to basically visualize these lipid droplets and actually quantify them volumetrically. So this is a mouse femur. Um, this was treated in osmium tetroxide uh, for a week uh, in the dark, as I mentioned, because it's photosensitive. Uh, this was mounted in a, a centrifuge tube with support to immobilize uh, the sample. Uh, 4X objective, this actually is two tomograms that has been stitched together vertically. Um, 801 slices per tomogram, three second exposure. Voxel size about two microns, two and a quarter microns. And you can actually see uh, that we can see the calcified tissue in purple and we can see uh, we get beautiful segmentation of all of the lipid droplets um, in that sort of heat map yellowy orange color and we can um, calculate the percent volume of the total sample and the percent volume um, of uh, uh, the lipids. Um, another example uh, in uh, imaging bone is actually uh, some work we've done with one of our uh, oncology labs here. Um, they're looking at primary breast malignancies and then uh, metastasis of the primary tumor to the bone. So this is actually a mouse femur stained in Lugols for five days. You can see all of the musculature in the green and red and the bone in blue, but that kind of amorphous area that you're looking at now uh, on the left-hand side of the rotating image, um, and then coming back now, you see it on the right-hand side, um, that's actually um, uh, a tumor um, that has formed from metastatic cells that have, have metastasized, metastasized from the primary breast malignancy um, to uh, a secondary site uh, in the bone. So again, this is mouse femur, Lugols for five days, and we can actually uh, segment out that tumor and calculate the volume uh, very easily. Um, and this analysis was actually done using uh, Dragonfly Pro uh, from ORS. So imaged on the 4X objective, uh, 3,200 slices, four-second exposure, a voxel size of, of 1.9 microns. Um, I mentioned earlier um, about doing targeted labeling. Um, so we, as I mentioned, we do this using uh, enzyme-catalyzed metallography. Um, so we have another lab in, in, in the Musculoskeletal Research Center um, that basically, uh, this is the mouse tibia, um, and they're looking at bone regrowth. 
Um, so this is a tibia that's actually been loaded, put under mechanical loading, um, and then uh, left to recover. Um, and then uh, they're, uh, they're basically wanting to visualize osteoblasts, so bone-forming cells. Um, and they, uh, we have an antibody against those cells. We have a secondary antibody with the, the HRP. Um, we can catalyze the deposition of silver. And you can actually see uh, the lighter gray in the image here. Um, the reconstructed tomogram is, is the bone. And then you can actually see the, uh, in bright white um, the silver deposits, uh, which have been done in close proximity to those uh, labeled osteoblast cells. So this was done on the 0.4x flat panel detector, one second exposures, uh, 3,200 slices. Uh, the voxel size is around six microns, and, and this is a maximum intensity uh, projection you're looking at. I also mentioned earlier um, some tracing agents. So this is an example of some work we've done with Oravist. Um, so you're looking at a pair of mouse lungs here. Um, Oravis was uh, circulated around the animal for 90 minutes. Um, animal was, uh, mouse was euthanized. Um, major vessels were tied off. Uh, we then took, uh, took the lungs, mounted them in a tube for support. And this is a 0.4x flat panel image, 1601 slices with five second exposures. Um, and this is actually a voxel size of around 10 microns. And you can see you get beautiful penetration um, of the orifice really throughout the entire um, uh, vascular tree uh, from the largest vessels all the way down to sort of the smallest um, capillaries. Um, so after this successful experiment, um, our developmental biology uh, colleague, uh, who's a, a clinical fellow in, in, in pediatric cardiology here at the medical school, uh, threw us a bit of a curveball and wanted to image the airways in conjunction with the vasculature. Um, so Matt in my group uh, came up with the idea of doing a combined Oravist experiment for vascular tracing with a three-day counter-staining with Lugol's iodine for the airway tracing. And this is now a sub-volume uh, sub, uh, tomogram um, that's been taken uh, with the 4x objective, 10-second exposure, 3,200 slices. We have a one and a half uh, micron voxel, and you can actually see the airways beautifully, um, and then also the uh, the vascular tree uh, really down at the capillary level. Um, really beautiful uh, reconstruction, I think. If we look at that in the 2D form, um, you can actually see this uh, from really just scrolling through the, the, the YZ orthoplane, and you can see um, Really, it's very easy to segment out the uh, the orifice-filled um, uh, vascular tree, and then you can see the, the airways um, beautifully labeled uh, with the Lugol's iodine. Again, you can segment out and create a different surface. Another really interesting experiment um, that we did was from uh, my neuroscience colleague, uh, Azar Bonny here, um, and he's a developmental neurobiologist and is very interested um, in sort of the development of the cerebellum. And they had an interesting um, potential hypothesis, which is, uh, is there any sort of volumetric changes in different developmental stages of the cerebellum uh, in response to specific treatments? Um, and so we actually uh, worked with them to, to take um, basically the chunk of mouse brain um, stained in, in Lugols for two days. And then you can see that sort of upper... Uh, left corner where you have bits of the, the red and yellow 
um, in the surface rendered model. Um, this is actually the cerebellum, and we can quantify the volume of those particular lobes um, from different mice, different uh, developmental time points um, to give them the statistical data that they need. So this was imaged uh, on the forex scintillated objective, six second exposure, 1601 slices. Uh, our voxel size is around two microns. Uh, another really interesting experiment that we did um, was actually uh, looking at um, a mouse model um, of uterine infections, so aborted pregnancy. Um, so what you're looking at here is actually an extracted mouse uterus stained in Lugols for five days. This was to give uh, a 3D view of the pregnancy in the uninfected and in the infected case. Um, this is actually the uninfected um, sample you're looking at, mounted in a, in a fairly large epitube for support, and you can see uh, beautiful um, staining of, of the ambiotic sacs and the, the, the pups that are in each sac, and then also the, uh, the, the vagina and, and part of the uh, bladder there. So this was taken on the 0.4x flat panel um, detector, 10 second exposures, 3200 slices, uh, 7 micron uh, voxels. We can also um, take out, for example, uh, in the non-pregnant case, we can take out the mouse vagina, and this is the uninfected um, case. And the researcher we were working with in OBGYM was very interested in looking uh, and getting a 3D view uh, of the cervicovaginal junction um, because it's very, very difficult to image because when you process um, uh, the sample, um, there's a lot of uh, essentially mucus there. Um, so when you do the histology, you essentially lose, it disintegrates. So it's very difficult to visualize. So they were interested in, in, in knowing if we could do this. Um, so we, we had a crack at it. We did a, a 0.4x flat panel scan. You're looking at the XY uh, orthoplane fly through. Um, um, and they were very interested, can we create a 3D uh, model at higher resolution? So we did the scout and scan imaging with the 0.4x. We then went to the 4x objective and uh, basically we can generate a, a very high resolution uh, three-dimensional view of the cervicovaginal junction and we can actually navigate through um, the cervicovaginal junction uh, right there. Um, so this is again 4x objective, so we scout and scanned with the 0.4x flat panel, identified the region of interest, went in with the 4x scintillated objective, 3200 uh, slices, 10 second exposures, one micron voxels, and we actually were able to give the researcher um, a complete three-dimensional picture of that, of that particular sample. So I hope I've given you some really nice examples of what you can achieve uh, with the uh, X-ray microscope using different systemic uh, staining agents, uh, tracing agents, and also um, targeted uh, sort of antibody-targeted approaches. Um, what I'd like to do now um, is give you a sneak peek into uh, some work we've been doing. This has really been driven by Matt Jones uh, in my lab, um, but to develop a, a targeted correlative uh, XRM and FibSim nanotomography pipeline um, uh, really to study uh, pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy. So DCM or dilated cardiomyopathy is one of the most common causes uh, of pediatric heart failure. And in fact, the mortality rate without transplantation is high and the overall quality, overall impact on quality of life is incredibly dramatic. And what's really striking is that since the introduction of Lasix and Digoxin uh, in the 1970s, 
there have been no new heart failure therapeutics for children. And, you know, in the non-failing case, if you look at just some histology pictures here, um, to the dilated cardiomyopathy place, there are striking differences um, in uh, the tissue ultrastructure. So we've been working with um, a cardio practicing cardiologist here who's actually been working with zebrafish as a model system. Um, and zebrafish is a really excellent model system for research because the eggs are fertilized outside of the body. They're ideal for studying development. There are lots and lots of offspring. It's very easy to induce genetic changes. Um, and it's optically clear, which is great for, for optical microscopy, for example. So they've been uh, in, in WashU developmental biology, they've done a CRISPR-Cas9 screen and they've generated a library of mutants. And the reason for doing this is that 84% of the genes associated in human disease have a zebrafish counterpart. So the Levine lab, the, the cardiologist we work with, has identified one of these mutants as a model of pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy. So one of the challenges um, with staining with some of the heavy metals that we've been talking about um, you start off with a beautifully clear zebrafish, and as we like to joke in the, uh, in the lab, we, uh, we stain them with Matt's three favorite elements, osmium, uranium, and lead, and what you end up with um, is essentially a completely opaque object. Um, so once you do that, how can you find, say, a specific organ or junction? How can you find an immunolabel cell or group of cells? How can you identify a, a disease region? And how can you do this quickly and accurately? Basically, you're kind of looking around in the fog. It's like flying into San Francisco um, and not knowing where the runway is. So how do you navigate the fog? And the way that, that Matt in my group um, decided to do this is basically use XRM as the radar use Atlas V, correlative workspace, um, as the control tower, and use our Zeiss Crossbeam 540 FibSim um, as the runway. So here's the Versa 520 um, that we have in our lab. This is our radar. And what we can do is we can take that stained zebrafish. Um, this has been prepared in 1% osmium tetroxide, 0.3% potassium ferrocyanide, 2% uranyl acetate um, plus 2% uranyl acetate in 50% uh, ethanol embedded in aerodite resin. And this was all performed with, uh, processing was performed with microwave assistance. Um, so you can see the zebrafish mounted in the resin and then you can actually see the 0.4x um, flat panel image uh, of that resin block. The purple is the resin block and the orange um, object there is actually the, the zebrafish. So we can actually target a region of interest. We use the XY plane to correlate what will be the block face uh, in the FibSim. And we can actually use the XZ and YZ planes to measure the trimming distance. So how much of the block do we need to remove to get to that region of interest in the XY plane? And you can see here, I've marked it, it's about 1524 microns that we need to remove. So we can then actually brand um, on the block, the trimming depth, we can actually photo etch using a high-powered UV or near-infrared laser 
to brand fiducial marks and you can actually see there's a little U that's been uh, branded on the edge of the block there and we know exactly how much to remove. Um, we can remove that material with a rapid miller or an ultra microtome. We prefer a rapid miller. Um, some people say you can use an ion miller. Um, we have tried this. It generates way too much heat and it melts the block. Um, so really the safest way to remove material is with a, a rapid miller or an ultra microtome. So now we move on to um, Atlas V, which is basically our control tower. And Atlas V, if anyone doesn't know, is developed by a company called Fibix in Canada. Um, they're a really fantastic group of programmers. And what they've built um, basically is this single plane workspace, this correlative workspace, where we can put in multiple data sets. So now what you're looking at in red is a scanning EM image. In green, it's actually difficult to see because it's sort of around the, uh, the whole uh, image. It's a much bigger data set, but it's actually the XRM image. And you can see um, where you have, uh, hopefully you can see my mouse moving, but that's basically the, the, the block face that we saw in the XY image on the XRM. So it's, it's superimposed on the block face. And then we can see in blue some two blue squares where we've actually imaged with the fib beam, so the focused ion beam on the cross beam, which is a focused ion beam of uh, focused beam of gallium ion. Sorry, um, and you can see we can correlate the corners of the block with the fib and the electron beam. And what Atlas also does um, is it basically guides you through the sample preparation, where we can actually deposit. Um, a protective a pad of platinum. We can put in um, fiducial tracking marks and uh, what we call the Wolverine claw, these three parallel marks together um, for doing autofocus and auto stig. And then we can dig a trench. Um, and basically the block face um, is perpendicular uh, to uh, the imaging plane here. And we would basically image that sort of at 90 degrees. So then we get to uh, the Crossbeam 540. This is the one we have in the lab. Um, uh, Gemini 2 electron optical column and a Capella, a Capella fib column. Um, this is our runway. Um, just looking at a schematic, you see we actually have our tissue block. We have the trench that we've dug. The imaging beam images the block face this way. The milling beam comes in and removes material this way. And we have our protective pad here. Um, in, in carbon and platinum, which basically uh, allows the milling beam to uh, remove material without damaging um, the, the, the block face. And so you can see there we have our protective bab with the tracking fiducials, the trench, and you can see below uh, an image of the block face. So here's actually a movie uh, that we've put it all together. So Matt has done this in the lab. This is the 0.4x image. Um, he can threshold out the resin so we can have the zebrafish. We can target the heart. Uh, he can swap to the 4x scintillated objective, um, go through um, in the uh, XY plane um, to identify the tissue of interest. In this case, that's the heart in the zebrafish. Um, he can go back out um, to the 0.4x objective in the resin block, calculate the distance that we need to remove, as I said, 1,524 microns. Um, we can actually remove that with a rapid miller, um, get to the block face, identify a region of interest. In this case, it's the pericardium 
uh, part of the heart muscle. We can then do the serial block face imaging. So we image the block face, we ablate some material off, we image the block face, we ablate some material off. Um, you can actually now see um, a 3D volume of the pericardium. We can then do um, a maximum intensity projection that's a that allows us, in this case, to visualize the entire um, T-tube network uh, in the sample. So I think this is a really, really neat approach. Um, the XRM is our radar. It allows us to spatially select um, and target a unique tissue structure in a whole organism. Um, the Atlas V correlative workspace is our control tower. It allows us to correlate uh, multimodal data sets and decide where to go, where to basically make that runway. Um, and then the FibSim is actually our, our runway. It facilitates the 3D nanotomography of a sample um, at nanometer resolution. Um, so this, this correlated XRM FibSim pipeline allows us to spatially target unique tissue structures for three-dimensional ultrastructural investigation at both high speed and high precision. And it really does provide us a route um, to unique insights into a given disease pathophysiology. So in summary, um, I've given you an introduction to X-ray imaging today and hopefully illustrated the utility of the Zeiss Versa 520 XRM um, for digital histology. Uh, we've gone through sample preparation approaches. Um, I, I've talked and highlighted systemic um, versus targeted tissue labeling approaches and also tracing reagents and uh, illustrated some different sample mounting techniques and really how critical uh, uh, sample immobilization is uh, for high resolution X-ray imaging. Um, I've showed you uh, a whole host of different biological structures um, uh, imaged using the XRM. Uh, and then I've, I've given you a sneak peek into our new correlated, correlated XRM FibSim imaging pipeline, um, really using the XRM as a radar to identify uh, rare tissue structures. And on that note, um, I'd like to acknowledge uh, my group, um, particularly Matt Jones, staff scientist in my group, uh, he's really been the pioneer of, of a lot of our XRM work. Um, and Daniel Jeenan, uh, who's a research assistant in the lab who works with Matt uh, on the XRM. Um, I also want to highlight my collaborators. Matt Silver um, wrote the original grant uh, from NIH for the, uh, for the XRM system. Um, and we work uh, closely with his lab, Erica Scheller in uh, bone and mineral diseases here, Kathy Wilbacker in oncology, Corey Levine in cardiology, uh, Jose Sainz in, in gastroenterology, Amanda Lewis in microbiology, uh, Kelvin Wu in pediatrics, and Azad Bonney, uh, who's the chair of neuroscience here. And uh, we're very lucky to, to have uh, funding in the lab, so just an acknowledgement to WashU, uh, the Children's Discovery Institute, the Foundation for Barnes Jewish Hospital, uh, NIDDK at NIH and NSF, and also the Office of Research Infrastructure Programs, uh, Grant S10, uh, OD021694, which funded um, the XRM instrument. And on that note, I would be uh, delighted to uh, take any questions. And I just want to thank you all uh, for tuning in today. Uh, so thanks for your attention. Um, and I hope you enjoyed the presentation. Thank you, James. That was an excellent presentation. We do have a few questions from the audience. If anybody else has a question at this time, please feel free to post it in the question box that appears on the right-hand side of your screen. Um, today for the Q&A session, we also have Matthew Johans.
who is a staff scientist in James's lab. So let's get this Q&A session kick-started. So first of all, we have a question from Suhad, who asks, how large can the samples actually be that you study with this kind of technique? Um, so the, the, the samples can be uh, sort of varied in size. Um, I think probably the largest uh, sample that we have put in um, is probably on the order of about um, 10 to 15 centimeters in size. Um, and we've done that with vertical stitching. Um, what you can also get with the Versa 520 is what's called an FPX or a flat panel extension um, that allows you um, to go uh, larger than that. Um, I will admit I don't know exactly how large um, you can go, but I think it's definitely tens uh, of centimeters in, in sample size. Um, so we've imaged everything from a knife fish head um, uh, to rock samples all the way down to, you know, sort of cell cultures. Uh, so we really have traversed kind of the whole uh, structural uh, continuum, if you will, uh, of biological samples. Okay, so there's a lot of possibilities. <laughs> That's really what you're saying there. Okay, um, and then the next question comes in from Jenny, and it is, what is the highest resolution that you can achieve? with the technology? So in terms of resolution, um, it is sub-micron level resolution, and I think the, the, the official technical spec is 0.7 uh, microns in resolution, but the minimum voxel size you can get with the 40x scintillated objective is a 70 nanometer voxel. Um, so, yeah, in terms of resol resolving power, it's it's essentially a little bit above a half micron. In terms of the actual voxel size that you can get with the highest magnification optical objective, it's 70 nanometer voxels. Okay, great, thank you. Um, and then there's a question in from Pernilla. So you've talked a lot about the applications that you can do with this um, with this technique, and you know it's obvious that there are a lot of possibilities. Um, but could you sort of um, sort of uh, summarize what the biggest challenges are? In other words, what kind of pitfalls should people be aware of when they start out with this? I, mean, I think that the, you know, sort of the, I don't really think there are many pitfalls, to be honest. Um, what I will say is that, you know, out of the last sort of two decades of me doing microscopy, um, the thing that has impressed me most about this system is it is so robust and the interface for using it is so easy that literally if you had, for example, um, you know, like a mouse femur um, that you put in the, uh, in the system and you didn't even really optimize the detector and source positions, but you just kind of put them at equal distance and told it to go, um, you would actually end up with a pretty impressive computed tomogram. Um, I think when you're, um, I think a challenge um, in, in sort of tackling a lot of the different uh, systems and, and structures that we've tried to visualize, it's really getting the labeling to work. And so, you know, as I, as I mentioned in the webinar, our, kind of our go-to method is really just to start with Lugol's iodine because it just gives you pretty much systemic contrast in any biological sample. Um, and that just really gives us sort of a view into what's there. And then sort of once we have that kind of global sort of holistic viewpoint of the sample, then we can figure out, okay, well, if we want to look at, say, musculoskeletal, 
um, structures, we can move to perhaps one of our uh, uh, sort of uh, phospho agents, either PTA or, or PMA, for example. Um, or if we know that we have, say, uh, a structure that's labeled with green fluorescent protein, um, we can use an anti-GFP um, antibody that's biotintillated and then a stripped avidin HRP, and then we can do the enzyme catalyzed metallography. We know if we want to work with lipids, um, we know that osmium tetroxide is a good starting point, but then there are different ways you can optimize sort of an osmication prep, whether you use reduced osmium, uh, whether you use this bridged osmium approach like the OTO prep. Um, I think Matt could uh, chime in here with some sort of other specifics. Um, uh, other things that for staining with osmium, there's metazole, which would go, uh, allow the osmium penetrate a little deeper, a little quicker. Um, but really, you know, as James said, it's a very easy to use system. And uh, really the only learning curve for us has been how to improve uh, imaging time. Uh, so just optimizing how we mount the sample, uh, distances of the source in the detector, uh, just to make it go a little bit quicker. I mean, I think one of the things, so that's an excellent point, Matt. I think one of the, the things that um, that we learned is when you go to higher magnification, you're essentially um, collecting information from a smaller sub-volume of the sample. Um, so essentially, you're relying, if you remember, you're relying on x-rays to pass through the sample, hit the scintillating material to produce light, the objective lens collects that light and then uh, it goes onto an EMCCD camera for detection. Um, if you're collecting from a smaller sub-volume of the sample, it means you're collecting a smaller um, group of x-rays, for example, which means you have less light, which means that you need to integrate for longer on the camera um, to get a sufficient signal to noise because you have to be above a certain count rate in order to get a reasonable reconstruction. Um, and so, you know, as you go up to sort of 4x and then 20x and even up to 40x, um, and I will say we don't do a huge amount of work at 40x, really at 20x is sort of way higher than we need for most of our applications. Um, but if you, for example, uh, don't bin the camera, um, you have to integrate for longer time periods. So sometimes what we do um, is when we go to sort of 20x, we might bin. So instead of using all of the pixels, we do like a two by two bin. So you have uh, four pixels equates to one uh, sort of virtual pixel, if you will. Um, and that way we can cut down on the imaging time. Um, because even though these samples are not live, you are irradiating them a lot. Um, so for example, on some of our 20x runs, we've gone for sort of 24 hours plus. Uh, imaging time um, to get the highest resolution. Um, and when you take the resin, so for example, the zebrafish work uh, on the the correlative XRM FIPSIM pipeline that we've been developing, uh, when you take the resin blocks out, you actually see where the resin's been irradiated, it's changed color. Um, so you do, in terms of sort of maintaining sample longevity, you, you, you don't necessarily want to irradiate it for a long time. Okay. Thank you. So from what you're saying, it sounds as though using the instrument is not the challenge here. It's the sample preparation upstream and then also figuring out how to optimize the use of your time um, to get the best possible images. I think it's a, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's really a common theme in microscopy now. Um, obviously, okay. I've been doing it for a while, uh, perhaps longer than I like to admit. Um, but the, 
I think that the technology platforms for, for optical microscopy, for electron microscopy, and now um, sort of the evolution of micro CT, nano CT, and then this sort of combined X-ray microscope, um, the technology platforms are incredibly robust and they give you incredible resolution. Um, so the challenge actually lies on either end of that pipeline. So at the beginning, it's really getting the best possible sample prep because when you didn't have good resolution, if your sample prep wasn't so good, the artifacts you didn't notice. But I think now if there are any uh, artifacts as a result of sample preparation, tissue shrinkage, or you know, ultrastructural damage, if you've pulled out, a, a, you know, dissected out, say, a tissue section and you haven't been careful, um, you will actually see, uh, see those artifacts now in your samples. And then sort yeah. of consequently, uh, on the other end of the imaging, it's really the quantification. Um, so actually um, taking that data, I mean, it's one thing showing sort of attractive images, but it's another to actually extract uh, quantitative information. And I think there are a lot of computational tools now that allow you to do that. Some are freeware, uh, ImageJ is sort of a staple in our lab. We do a lot of MATLAB coding. But also, for example, Emaris um, uh, and Amira, and we do a lot of work with Dragonfly Pro, for example, from ORS. Um, and we can take the XRM data sets, uh, we can import them directly into Dragonfly, for example, and there are a lot of really useful tools in terms of thresholding, filtering to you know, smooth out noise, especially if you've been using a, a, a higher magnification objective, um, and then some really neat tools for doing um, segmentation of, of objects, and that's how we uh, did, for example, the lipid quantification. Okay, you've almost answered my next and last question. <laughs> um, <so Simone's> <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, Simone is wondering if there are any resources, like trustworthy resources available online to help with sample preparation. I mean, where could somebody go if they were in trouble? Like as you say, before, if you were using um, sort of... Um, less um, powerful technology, let's just call it that, you may not see the artifacts that were there, but now you can see them. How does somebody go about troubleshooting that um, if they don't have the expertise around them? Are you aware of any good resources? Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, I mean, really kind of our sort of go-to method in the lab is to try and image the sample um, in concert with some of our other modalities. Um, we're obviously quite lucky because we have a lot of additional equipment here in, in optical microscopy and electron microscopy. Um, so we like to try and verify um, using one of the other modalities. Um, I think yeah. um, if you, in terms of online resources, um, for example, if you're looking, there's an atlas, for example, electron microscopy atlas that you can look up most cells and, and most tissues and and you can see if the structures are making sense. Um, I don't believe there's one for XRM. Maybe maybe we should start building one. That's actually a good idea. Yeah, maybe we should. <laughs> and then, uh, for example, there's, uh, I know at Zeiss, for example, the applications group, they have um, some really useful white papers on uh, uh, some different sample prep techniques. Um, and then I believe Zeiss also has a reference library um, of all of the references that have been, all of the publications to date that have used XRM. Um, so, and there are some review articles, for example, in PubMed, if you search for sort of X-ray microscopy and sample prep, there are a couple of review articles um, there as well. 
Um, and then, you know, one of the other things, you know, that we haven't been shy about is reaching out to people that we know have a system and said, hey, you know, we're seeing this odd thing with this sample. What do you think? Um, certainly, if people uh, want to reach out to us, um, if they had questions, you know, I'm always more than happy to, to share um, our expertise and, you know, uh, where we've learned from mistakes. So that, that's another possible resource for people in the community. Great. That's really fantastic. That's um that's really good. I think that pretty much wraps it up and brings us to the end of the seminar, unless you have anything to add, James or Matthew? Um, no, I just we uh, I think both, from both of us, we'd really just like to say thanks very much for tuning in today. Um, we also want to thank our colleagues at Zeiss um, for asking us to do this. It's really nice to have the opportunity to um, share our experience. And I think, uh, you know, one of the, the key things in getting new technology platforms out into the market and getting uh, people to use them is really sort of showing sort of the utility of what can be accomplished. Um, I can tell, you know, people that uh, since we got the system about two years ago, um, it pretty much get, gets used every day. Um, we're yeah. running it between sort of 12 to 18 hours a day. It's such an incredibly useful system, uh, way more than I thought it would actually be when we uh, first invested the money in it. So it's, it's really been a fantastic addition to our group. So. Great, thank you. Um, that sounds like it's very, very, um, yeah, that makes sense. What was I going to say? Um, thank you very much, James, for a very illuminating presentation and a fantastic discussion. Thanks also to you, Matthew. And thank you to our sponsor, Zeiss. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you have enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you'll also be able to see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Zeiss and Bite Size Bio. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.